Good morning. morning. All right, let's go ahead and begin with prayer this morning. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to come and share and study. We pray that your spirit will join us, our hearts will join together in love, and our minds will be enlightened with the truth of your nature, kingdom, and character. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen. And we are doing lesson number 13 in the quarterly, the Gospel in Galatians. And the title this week is The Gospel and the Church. And normally this would be the last week in a quarterly, but we have a 14th lesson next week, so we'll do it one more week on the Gospel in Galatians. And then the following week we start the new quarterly, so be sure and pick one up in the next couple of weeks, which is Glimpses of Our God. Ooh, doesn't that sound good? Glimpses of Our God. Be interesting what kind of glimpses they're getting and what kind of glimpses we're getting, huh? Yeah, because it all comes down to that question, doesn't it? Who is God? What's he like? So, Sabbath lesson, the, the first section here, it says... Some potato farmers decided to save the biggest potatoes for themselves and to plant the smaller potatoes as seed. After a few disappointing harvests, they discovered that nature had reduced their potato crops to the size of marbles. Through this disaster, those farmers learned an important law of life. They could not have the best things of life for themselves and use the leftovers for seed. The law of life decreed that the harvest would reflect the planting. In another sense, planting small potatoes is still common practice. We take the big things of life for ourselves and plant the leftovers. We expect that by some crazy twist of spiritual laws, our selfishness will be rewarded with unselfishness. Paul applies this principle in Galatians 6. Instead of members biting and devouring one another, the church should be a place where the Spirit leads us to put others before ourselves. Understanding that we are saved by grace should make us humble and more patient and compassionate in how we treat others. What do you think of that? Wasn't that great? This is really right on the money. And and as we think about it, they talk about the law of life here. What do you understand as they describe it here, the law of life to be? What is... What is the law of giving, I heard? Other-centered love. Other-centered love, yes. And do you notice what they're describing also, though? The law of love they describe nicely. The principle of giving rather than taking. But, but they also describe, well, let me ask you this. This law of life they described here, which government decided to legislate that? Nobody did. That's right. And, and when you break this law that they broke, these farmers, when the farmers broke this law and planted the little stuff and kept the big stuff, and, and they were acting selfishly, breaking the law of love, trying to keep the best for themselves, did, did somebody have to um, punish them? Did God punish them by using miraculous power from heaven to make sure they had bad harvests in the future? Um, Would we do harm if we taught that if you keep the big stuff and plant the little stuff, that God will punish you by giving you a bad harvest? Would we do harm if we taught that? Is there a spiritual lesson here in the spiritual realm? Would we do harm that if we teach that if we break God's law, God will punish us for breaking his law? Would we do harm for that? Well, there are consequences to breaking the law. Well, okay, let's back to the farmers. Were there consequences for them planting the small stuff and keeping the big stuff for themselves? Was that, is that the same thing as teaching that God punished them for doing that? No. Okay? We would never do that in Christianity, would we? No. So let's look at Thursday's lesson. <laughs> same course. Yeah, let's jump to Thursday and, and look at this question. And, and it first asks us to read 
Galatians 6, 7 through 10. And notice how the Bible will support exactly what we just read in Sabbath's lesson. They're, they're hand in hand, this law of sowing and reaping, this law of, of nature, this law of life. And this is what it says, 7 through 10. Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. The one who sows to please his sinful nature from that nature will reap destruction. The one who sows to please the Spirit from the Spirit will reap eternal life. Let us not become weary in doing good. For at the proper time, we will reap a harvest. We will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. So, do you hear in the scripture the same lesson that was described in planting the potatoes? You just plant the small potatoes, you get small stuff. You plant selfishness, you'll get a selfish heart. You plant selfishness with a selfish heart. From that heart, you'll reap destruction. You see, it's a, a sowing, reaping law it's describing here. So, is that kind of a law, an enacted, legislated, imposed law, or is that a natural design, the way God built things to run? So now then, let's read the, the first two paragraphs in the lesson on Thursday. In Galatians 6-7, the word translated mocked occurs only here in the New Testament, although it often appears in the Greek translation of the Old Testament. It literally means to turn up one's nose in contempt. In the Old Testament, it typically refers to the despising of God's prophets. And it even is used once to describe geographically a rebellious attitude towards God. Paul's point is that people may ignore God or even flout his commandments, but they cannot outwit God. He is the ultimate judge. And in the end, they will have to pay the price for their actions. Did that come across very, very clear to you? Very nice. If you read the paragraph, what's the implication? What are they suggesting? Maybe I'm misreading it, so I'm just one person. You've got a lot of minds here. How do you read it? What does it sound like to you? That he is going to judge us. Well, he is ultimate judge. The implication is judges make decisions. And the decision is you violated something, so there you reap the consequences. Now, that's not what I believe, but that's what is implied to me. So God is the ultimate judge is implying that the ultimate judge will make judgments. Well, also, using this word outwit God, it seems to be a game there. Oh, we can't trick him. He'll catch us in our trick. And when he catches us, well, he's the judge. He'll see it right. And then we have to pay the price to the piper. That's how it sounds to me. Am I mishearing it? Yeah. No, I, I, I think you're right, but, but rightly understood. The paragraph is correct. Rightly understood. God does judge correctly, and in the end, those that are out of harmony with his law will pay a dear price. That's right. will be one inflicted by the judge, but... And, and I appreciate that because you're right. Understood rightly, but does it suggest or lead us to draw ideas about God that might not be right? Yeah. That the problem with... Breaking God's law is not what the farmers had. They broke the design upon which God built life, and therefore when you break that design, there's inherently built into it consequences that are harmful and destructive. But instead, when you break the design, well, the judge will come in, and he will impose the punishment that you deserve for your breaking. I mean, is it suggesting that? Yes. Yeah. Would we do harm to present that idea? Because, but also understand that this judge is a very loving and a very caring judge, and it and in some of our minds it comes across very strong, uh, you know, a very condemning kind of like you're condemned because you know, uh, but it, but we have to understand he's a loving 
Jesus wept tears when he spoke to people in judgment of the way they were living. Over here, yes. Why do we have to have a judge? Thank you. Um, so could we substitute a synonym that would mean the same thing that connotes a completely different meaning? Instead of he's going to judge, he's going to... Diagnose. Diagnose. Is, doesn't, isn't a diagnosis a judgment? Yes. But when you diagnose, does it connote a different meaning? Yes. You see, when we use the term judgment, we get this very kind of arbitrary, imposed, forensic, legal kind of view. But when we use the word diagnose, it immediately brings to bear the natural law. Hey, he's diagnosing our problem. And when you think diagnose, well, what's a person who's diagnosing automatically planning to do? cure you, heal you, fix you. There's the compassionate part coming in. But when we think about our judges, judges, when they judge, are they automatically thinking of ways they can heal you and fix you and help you? No. So it connotes a completely different idea. I I think we might do a disservice at times. Yes. At the end of Ecclesiastes, uh, Solomon makes a very clear statement about the judgment. Every secret work, everything that man has done will be brought into the judgment. Uh, he makes it very clear to the people in the Old Testament. And what, is, what do we understand that judgment to be? We'll be judged according to our deeds and our thoughts and works. Okay, and what does that mean? Those are the words used. What does it mean? Well, those who are wicked will not be go unpunished. Yes. W- why? Because the judge will do an investigation, look at the record books, determine uh, who's wrong, and decide what appropriate punishment is and inflict that punishment upon them? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's the common view. Those behaviors make or show that a person is unfit to be in the presence of God. He can't stand to be in the presence of God. So the judgment is the ultimate diagnosis. When God stands up, it says in Revelation, let those who are righteous be righteous still. Let those who are wicked be wicked still. Is that a judgment? Is he making a judgment at that point? Is his judgment determining the outcome for those lives? No. Or is his judgment simply accurately diagnosing the condition that they have found themselves and put themselves in? You see, we have a little twist. We think the judge, his judgment is determining. His judgment doesn't determine. God's judgment does not determine your outcome. Your decisions to accept or reject him determine your outcome. Revelation 12, 22 verse 12 says that God will give everyone according to their works or according to what they have chosen. Yes, God will give everyone according to what they've chosen. Yes, Wendell. Well, in the second paragraph that you were reading, it talks about Paul's point is that people may ignore God or even flout his commandments. You know, I don't know, but it's, I'm sure there are the statement commandments and whatnot, but when God gave his commandments, he didn't call them the the commandments. We have labeled them commandments. They could be just as aptly described as descriptors. You know, and that is a description of what someone who is godly looks like. I like that. It very much is. If you love your neighbor, will you steal from them or ruin their reputation, or murder them. So if, no. if you look at those as commandments that we have to obey to fulfill some organized set of rules, otherwise we will be punished, 
Or is it, this is a descriptors of what happens, and then as a natural result of that, we become closer to God. So we have two ways to view the law. As the quarterly started out, with the law of life, it used the term, law of life, where the planting the small potatoes, you reap a small harvest, this law of life, sowing and reaping. We have a imposed law system. We have two ways to view it, which ultimately then reflect back on God. How do you view God? Did he, is he the imposer of law, imposing penalties, judgments, and all these things? Now, when you view these laws in these two different ways, does it make a difference to our kids? Does it make a difference to our young people? Does it have an impact on why people leave the church? If, if you present an arbitrary system of rules without reason that an authoritarian has put into place, and if you don't obey the rules, you will be punished, does that lead to love and trust? Or does it lead to rebellion? Rebellion. It leads to rebellion. Yeah. And so, do we have a responsibility as Christians to present a better message? Yeah. Sunday's lesson, first paragraph, it says... While Paul has lofty expectations for the nature of the Christian life, his counsel to the believer in Galatians 6 has, is, um, Galatians 6 1 also is refreshing, refreshingly realistic. Humans are not perfect, and even the most dedicated Christians are not immune to mistakes. In Greek, Paul's word, words in Galatians 5 16 indicate that he is envisioning a situation that is likely to happen in the church at some time. Paul gives the Galatians practical advice on how to deal with such situations when they arise. Now I'm going to tell you, I personally don't like the, the use of the word mistakes here. That's just me. I just personally don't like the use of the word. Because when I, when I it's way me, my mind works, I guess, but when I hear mistakes, I think things like, planted the tree too close to the house and I need to move it, or I made an error in my checkbook, or I dialed the wrong phone number. Those are mistakes. That's how I hear it. Um, and is there a difference in making a math mistake in your checkbook, which results in you overdrawing on your account and bouncing a check, versus knowing you don't have the funds and you purposely write checks that you know are going to bounce? Are those two things different? Are they both, would you call both of those things mistakes? No. Which, which would you call a mistake? The, choice. The, the, the math error or the purposeful fraud? Math. Yeah. And if you made, if you made a, an, an error in math and you believed you had $500 in your account, you really had $5 in your account, okay? And so you wrote a check for $200, have you, and, and, it, and it bounces, but you thought you had 500 there, have you sinned? No, there's no sin here. Yeah. Then why in the Old Testament did God ask for sacrifices for sins that were committed and they didn't know about them? Yeah, we're not there yet, Wendell, but thanks. <laughs> okay? No, you're exactly right. That's the question, and we're, and we're pushing that envelope right now, and we need to explore that. Um, in heaven, when we get to heaven, can sinless beings make mistakes without sin? Yeah. And I, I give, I like some, can a sinless being, when you get to heaven and you've never played the harp, do you think that you might hit a wrong note when you start to learn? If you decide to pick up the harp, you may never. How about, was, was it a mistake for Eve to wander alone in the garden? Was that a mistake? Yes. Was it sin? Had she sinned by wandering alone? Oh. But it wasn't sin yet, was it? Hmm, interesting, isn't it? 
So she makes a mistake, but she hasn't yet rebelled or sinned. I just point out, we can make mistakes that are not sinful. That's all. Are mistakes and violations of God's law of love the same? Always. Always the same. They can be, but are they always? uh, second, Second paragraph says, to benefit from Paul's advice in Galatians 6.1, we need to understand the, the precise type of situation that Paul had in mind. This revolves around two words used in the first half of the sentence. The first is caught or, or overtaken. It literally means to be detected or overtaken or surprised. The context and different nuance, uh, nuances associated with the word suggest that Paul has two aspects in mind. It refers not only to a believer who catches another believer in the act of some wrongdoing, but also to the process by which a person finds himself overtaken by a behavior that under the best of circumstances he would not have he would have chosen to avoid. What do you understand this to be meaning? What's the point that the lesson is suggesting Paul's trying to make? Christians, when dealing with other Christians, don't view them through the lens of suspicion. They view them through the lens of God's grace. And so it would come to you as a shock and a surprise to find your fellow Christian in some caught up in some sinful problem. I can't believe that. It shocks me. I would never thought of that of you. It, 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 it excludes the possibility of investigating uh, and going around searching for dirt on your fellow Christian. We don't do investigations. We don't do witch hunts in the church or in the universities. We never do a witch hunt in the university, do we? It excludes that possibility because we see them through the lines of, eyes of grace, always uh, expecting them to live in harmony with God's law of love, and it would shock us to find that they weren't. We'd be surprised by that. Are you surprised by that? Wow. I know I have some work to do. Lord, we've got some more work to do in my heart. The lenses I'm looking through still got some taint and dirt on them. Yeah. And then the converted person, I think the, ex, the, the real significance when we bring it home to our own hearts, may have weaknesses in their own character, their own heart that they are not aware of, which may present in certain situations... <clears throat> That shocks the person. I never thought I would do such a thing, or I could do such a thing. Wow. So when this happens, what's the proper response? And I'm going to give some examples of this in a moment. The third paragraph tells you, the likelihood that the wrongdoing Paul is discussing is not deliberate is evident in the term, from the terminology he uses. The word translated as fault or sin, which comes from the Greek word paraptoma, Uh, does not refer to a deliberate sin, but rather a mistake, a stumble, a false step. The latter makes particular sense in light of Paul's previous comments about walking in the Spirit. Although this is no no way excuses the person's mistake, it makes clear that Paul is not dealing with the case of defiant sin. And, uh, of course, you know, I initially had to ask the question, can anyone give me an example of unintentional sin and defiant, deliberate sin? Is one type of sin less damaging than the other type of sin? If you slip off of a 10-story building and fall, or you jump off a 10-story building on purpose, will the damage be less? I slipped. I won't get hurt when I fall 10 stories. Or 
do we see this through the lens of an imposed law system where the imposer of law will say, you didn't intend that, we'll, we won't impose as much punishment on you. You intended it, will punish you worse. If it's the imposed law system, the nuance of intent seems to be much more significant, doesn't it? If you have been taught by your parents, and I have some patients who as children were either given whiskey in their bottles as babies to quiet them down, or smoked marijuana with mom and dad from the age of five on. Now, do those kids know the difference between right and wrong at that point? No. We would say this would be unintentional on their part, wouldn't it? They're not making an informed choice, so their brains won't be damaged by that. Right? Or will their brains still be damaged by that? Hmm. Because there's a law being broken. One of the laws of health is being broken. You can break them intentionally. You can break them ignorantly. Does the laws, do the laws of health make a determination on whether you're doing it purposely or ignorantly? Which way do you think God's laws work? Are you getting uncomfortable with this idea? I saw his hand somewhere. It also suggests a little bit, when I read this earlier, that maybe the how God will deal with it will be somehow different too, which is troublesome because if we look at Jesus and how he dealt with his disciples, you have Peter and Judas. Uh, I think Jesus treated both the same way, but both re- had a choice and they responded differently. Very, very, very well said. Exactly and right. So that's troublesome to me on this too. And my, my reading of the lesson, my experience in different churches has been we like the witch hunt much better than we do treating each other with respect and trying to heal, kind of like we're a ward of patience trying to help each other get better. We would much rather, you know, I don't know saw people up in the operating room or something. That's much more delightful. And we're going to come back. That, that is so, you're, you're exactly, does that, everybody agree with him? I have the question because the lesson asks um, about why we might feel uncomfortable sharing our struggles with fellow church members. And it suggests it's because of pride and of ego and these other things they suggest. I was thinking more along the lines, well, you just don't want to get sliced and diced. Right? How many of you have confidence that in the the church that you would be treated with grace, with love, with acceptance, with tender mercy, with people who understand and want to help through God's grace knit you back together from brokenness. How many of you would feel comfortable going to a person in the church and talk to them about your porn addiction? Or how about if you were the head elder? How many feel confident you would be treated with grace to be restored or would duty require we remove you from office? Obviously, we're only trying to help you now. How do we treat each other? Is there ever a reason to disfellowship somebody? As you hold that question, we'll continue to explore the difference between defiant and deliberate sin and this unintentional sin, that is the lesson I'm suggesting. And I would suggest when it comes to defiance, somebody who is in opposition to Christ and his mission and they are purposely working against Christ and his mission intentionally in the church, does that person need to be kept in the church? Yes. If a person rejects one of the 48 fundamental beliefs... The 48. Would that be... 483rd. Would that be a reason to say, I'm sorry, you can no longer be a member? Uh, Not in my opinion. Not at all. 
there was never a test of fellowship. We, we were, as an organization, never to have a creed. We weren't. The Bible was to be our creed. We, we understand that every person is to be fully persuaded in their own mind, that we're all on a journey coming from different places, and that each one of us are to come to our understanding and experience with God in our personal journey. We share and work together, and it's those different perspectives that help us grow as we challenge each other. So no, never. Never. But let's keep going on this, this question about this um, defiant sin. Would defiant sin simply not be the sin that we cherish, the selfishness, the ego, the lust, the addiction for which we personally cling, for which we have no desire to be free of, we, we, we want it, we hold to it, we defend it, we argue for it, we justify it. Would this not be the defiance? And not the, not the addiction that we are grieved over, we hate, we want to be free of, that we're struggling to overcome because of our, in our weakness, but the, 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 the sin that we actually justify as righteousness. Wouldn't that be the defiance sin? Yeah. So, because I've never met a person yet who's had an affair, and I've, in my practice, deal with a lot of people who've had an affair. I've never met one that didn't know it was wrong at the time they were engaging in it. Not one. Does that mean it was defiant sin? Because they knew it was wrong at the time. Or was it merely a mistake? Oh my, I, I thought you were my spouse. <laughs> <laughs> I had a mistake on my part. <laughs> no, I don't think it was a mistake. They've, they've never known it wasn't wrong. Not once. But yet, yes. But doesn't the Bible teach that there are no degrees of sin? Sin is sin. There's not a lesser or greater sin. See, this comes back to the whole question. I think, it, I don't know if you read this yet or not, but somewhere we're going to read this thing about types, maybe it's coming down, types of sin. And uh, I think that's going to get to that question when we talk about the types of sin that the lesson suggests. Are there types of sin? But let, let, let's finish this out and we'll get to your question. Um, so, so this idea, for instance, this sin of, of having an affair. Everyone knows it was wrong. The, the, the lesson has suggested it's either defiant and rebellious sin or it was a mistake. That's the choices the lesson has given us. I'm suggesting that there's something else, and it's, not, it's neither. It wasn't intentional, defiant sin. Neither was it simply a mistake. It was a evidence, a working out of a vulnerability in character that the person themselves had, was not yet even aware of that the situation exploited. So, example, you mentioned Peter earlier. Let's talk about Peter and his denial of Christ. It's a good example. Peter, prior to his denial... What was Peter's assessment of himself prior to his denial? Was Peter aware of the weakness in his character? But Christ was aware. True? Okay. And when Christ warned him about his weakness of character, what was Peter's response to Christ? Oh, you're wrong, Christ. You're wrong. Not me. I wouldn't do that. Not me. Mm -mm. That's not me. Okay. And then the denial. What the denial? What was the the ultimate outcome of that denial. What did it do for Peter? He was converted. Did it put a defect in his character that was not there? By his denial, by his act of rejecting Christ, cursing and all these things he did, did that behavior put a defect in his character or did it reveal a defect that was already there? Get your mind around this idea. That act brought Peter to awareness of defect 
that was already in his character that until he became aware of, he could not experience healing from. And if Christ had prepared him for that, he might have slid right past. Christ, of course, prepared him for three and a half years. It was three and a half years of journey. It wasn't just the night, the, the night before. Three and a half years of spending time with Christ, building that relationship. And you notice Christ before the denial said, when you're converted, feed my sheep. Three and a half years, walking on the water, performing miracles and all the things that Peter did, he wasn't yet converted. He was a leader in the church. He would actually stand in a higher authority in our church if Peter was here than the pastor, wouldn't he? Not yet converted. Leading in the church. And God allowed it. Yes, and God allowed it, yes. Within that context of a heart-changed awareness, can I just read quickly Galatians 6.1? Sure, go. We looked at the first part of the verse. So it says, Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. That's the point. Right. That's the point we're getting at right now. This is the point that Paul's making. You may have a defect in your character that you are completely unaware of, and it may take you unawares. Peter was prepared by Christ for three and a half years, plus Christ gave him a head-of-time warning. Plus, and let's talk about defiance in here, after Peter denied Christ, was there a period of time for reflection before his second denial? And a period of time before his third denial? What was going on there? Was this just a mistake on his part? No, and I, my, my suggestion to you is this, that Peter had a defect in character in which, even though he loved his Lord, he still loved himself more. And that defect of character was that thing we're wired with since Adam's fall, survival of the fittest, drive to survive. When push came to shove and his life was threatened, he needed to protect himself. And he was unaware how deeply rooted that drive to survive was in his heart and how it would lead him to betray the things he truly loves, his Lord. And he went out and went bitterly sick with the sinfulness and the twisting of his own heart. And that's when he was converted, died to self, and experienced a transforming experience where he would love others more than self. Still made some mistakes after that. But his heart was different. Way in the back. I think, too, when we go through things and when we sin, we have a better compassion for other people. I think we have to go through it sometimes in order to have that for other people. There's no question. And so what does this mean? As we look at what you just said, as we look at what Peter's experienced, what does it mean about how we see ourselves and see others? This is what Dennis mentioned earlier. It, it means that we see each other through the lens of, of that we're all dying and suffering of the same sickness. We're not, uh, I, the metaphor I like to use is imagine an HIV ward where everybody's dying of, of AIDS. But if you've ever dealt with those types of patients, that disease presents with many different presentations. It can present with something called Carposi sarcoma, which is black lesions in, in, on, the, on the skin. It can present with cytomegalovirus infections of the, of the eye where you're going blind. It can present with pneumocystis pneumonia, uh, which is a pneumonia. It can uh, present with, a, with a encephalitis. It can present in lots of different ways. But imagine if we had the pneumonia group over here criticizing the group over here who's going blind and the, and the blind group criticizing those who are coughing and those guys are criticizing the people with the lesions on their arms. You see, we're all suffering the same disease, but those suffering with an addiction get criticized by those people who are so righteous and never even eaten cheese. <laughs> you know? 
Isn't that right? But we're all suffering from the same disease. When we, when we see it through that lens, then we begin to be a hospital to minister, to help heal and restore each other, as Paul suggesting in Galatians. But when we see it through the behavioral eyes, well, something else happens. So I ask this question. So what is the defiant sin? Is it the act that one has awareness is wrong, like the affair or the denial? Or is it the heart that doesn't want to be healed regardless of the behavior? Which is the defiance? The heart. And I'm going to suggest to you, it's those times where we stumble and fall, like Peter, that brought him to the awareness and brought him to his repentance. And if you look in your own life, many people have that true conversion experience after a great moment of weakness where their heart's been exposed by the act. So what our attitude should be for each other? Well, the question that I want to ask the class then is, why is it in the church, the church is so often a place where we crucify each other rather than build each other up in love? Why is that the case? I have a suggestion for you, but any thoughts? It makes us feel better to condemn other people. <laughs> Could it be? Yeah, I'm not as bad as you. <laughs> remember, we're talking the natural law versus the imposed law here, remember? We started our class out. Small potatoes, big potatoes, right? Could it be the reason we crucify each other in the church is because that is the natural result, the automatic outgrowth of worshiping a judgmental, punishing, wrathful God? And if we plant seeds in the mind of God being judgmental, wrathful, inspector of misdeeds who must inflict punishment to be just, then we become like that God and we begin treating each other in the same way. Yes? Remember the Pharisee who said, I'm so glad I'm not like that publican over there that is so sinful. In other words, I'm better than the other guys. There you go. Exactly. So, so, Monday's lesson, it talks, uh, in Monday's lesson, we're not going to read the whole um, paragraph, but it says, uh, bottom paragraph, well, it says, one of the greatest dangers in the Christian walk is the sense of spiritual pride that makes us think that we somehow are immune to committing certain types of sin. Certain types of sin. There's that, that I, meant, I knew it was in the lesson somewhere. Is there a danger in thinking of sins as types? I think it's very much like the origins debate when you're talking about evolution. It's a slippery word. Do I believe in evolution? Absolutely. In another context, do I believe in evolution? No. I think we have to understand that we can't just use sin as a universal term because it means many different things in many different contexts. And I think we have to be very careful to understand what we mean when we say it. I, that's why I'm challenging. Yes, I, th- I would like to simply, I think we could clear this up from my perspective very easily if we just remove the word types and put the word symptoms in. There are many symptoms of sin. Or sin manifests itself in many ways. But sin at its root is always the same. It's a violation of the law of love. Always. It's lawlessness, as the scripture says. Being out of harmony with God's design for the way he built his universe to run. But it manifests in many ways, yes. Well, in Galatians, uh, in chapter 5, verse 19, starting with 19, 20, uh, the acts of the sinful nature, in that same sentence, it gives a whole list of stuff. And so witchcraft is one of the things on the list, and selfish ambition is on the same list. So how many of us would like, hey, yeah, we're ambitious. We want to make something of ourselves. And how do we compare that to witchcraft, for example? 
There's a lot of examples like that. So would we want to kick a witch out of our church? <laughs> would we? Would we? Would we? They asked the question, what would require somebody to be expelled from the church? How about somebody openly practicing witchcraft? How about somebody openly being ambitious? <laughs> what? We would admire them, yes. All right, Tuesday's lesson, burden bearing. Burden bearing. What comes to mind when you hear the idea of bearing another's burdens? What is the purpose of bearing one another's burdens? Is it to remove the burden? Is that the purpose? Is it to relieve them of responsibility? Is it to help the person? Oh, wait, what does it mean to help? (laughs) Yes, it is to help the person. What does it mean to help? Does it mean that we want to help them feel better? To make them happy? To help them, to give them what they're asking for? Or is genuine helping when we help in their development into Christ-likeness? And what would that mean in regards to burden-bearing? If if our goal is to help them into Christ-likeness, then how do we relate to burden-bearing with someone? Are there dangers, any dangers in bearing another person's burdens? Can we do them harm? Can we ever harm somebody by bearing their burdens? Yes. If a parent who has compassion and hates to see their child cry, hates to see them injured, that causes crying, uh, and the child's learning to walk, and that child stumbles and falls, scrapes their knee, bangs their head, and they cry, that parent breaks their heart, so the parent picks them up and carries the child and never sets them down again because they never want to see them hurt and injured. Is that parent going to help or cripple the child? Because they saw the burden as being injured rather than the burden was needing to learn to walk. Ah. Does this analogy have any application beyond childhood? Or is it only applicable when a child's learning to walk? Do we ever carry burdens for people who are capable of carrying their own burdens? And if we do, are we helping or injuring? I had a patient that I was consulted to see in the, in the renal ward. And I was consulted because she was very regressed. She was in renal failure on dialysis. But... She was very regressed. She wasn't eating. She wasn't bathing. She wasn't attending to her own hygiene needs. She, she was just laying lethargically in the bed and not really hardly responding at all. And I evaluated her and I evaluated the family and I've discovered that since uh, she was diagnosed with renal failure and gone on dialysis, that the family had become extremely attentive. They began taking care of her every need because she was sick. She needed help. And so I realized what I needed to do to help get her well and I moved her to, to our psychiatric unit so I could do a family ectomy on her. <laughs> I would excise the family away from this woman. And the first, the first hour on our unit, now she's in a hospital bed. If you know anything about hospital beds, they have little call buttons you can hit. And there's a hospital, you know, little uh, table that swings out over the bed. And on her hospital table, she's laying reclined back over the hospital table. Her glasses are on the hospital table. And she reaches around the table to hit the call button. The nurse comes in and she says... Will you put my glasses on my face? Okay, you understand it took more effort to hit the call button than it did to put the glasses on her face. And so the answer, of course, from the staff was no. If you want to put the glasses on your face, you can put them on your face. And we began taking this position with her. We will not do one thing for her that she's capable of doing for herself. Within a week, she was serving in the kitchen, cleaning up the tables. Um... (laughs) Seriously, she had all this ability, but she wasn't doing it because she was being cared for by everybody else. And they were infantilizing her. They were not helping her. They were killing her. 
And when we, when we want to help somebody, we require of them to fulfill the duties and responsibilities and live up to the capacities they possess. We don't take over their responsibilities. We cripple them. Yes. I was 18. I instantly got into credit card debt. So friends of mine would bail me out. And then I kept getting into debt. And finally, when they cut me off was when I learned how to deal with money. And I think sometimes we're so afraid for people to struggle. But that's when we learn. We love you. Yeah. For telling, seriously, I love you telling that story. It took courage for you to admit that personal history in here. And I love that. Don't you love that? Because I can tell you, you're not the only one in here who has had situations like that. And, and, and I had another patient come to see me this week, this week, completely distraught, crying. She has a sister. It was very strange because the one I told you, the story I just told you happened about nine years ago. This week, I had a patient come into my office and tell me that she has a sister who's in renal failure. At home, though, not in the hospital, at home. And she has to go to dialysis several times a week. And this sister calls her every day, 15, 20 times a day, because she needs the house clean, needs food cooked, needs laundry done, needs a grocery list, needs this, needs the bills paid, da-da-da-da-da-da-da. And the, and the patient that I was seeing, my patient, was doing all this stuff for her sister. And she felt completely distressed and completely overwhelmed by it. She didn't know what to do. She cried. She told me I could tell you guys about this. And she said, and she asked me this question, so I'm going to ask you. She said, she's my, not only my sister, she's my sister in Christ. Aren't I supposed to serve her? What do you tell her? Love always does what's in the other person's best interest. And is it in the best interest to take over the responsibilities this woman can still do for herself? No. No. Essentially, each person has to work out his own salvation with the Lord's help. I had another patient the day after this week whose brother has a drug problem, lives in the deceased parent's home, doesn't pay any bills, doesn't uh, pay any utilities, doesn't do any grocery shopping, doesn't have a job. Uh, and she, she gives him money. She pays the bills, she buys his groceries, she's trying to get him a job, she, she is working frantically, she goes out and looks in the paper, find a job, gets an application, fills it out for him, he won't go to the interview. Okay? She's trying to get him on his feet, and he won't take any responsibility. He still lives in the house, she buys his food, pays his bills. What does she need to do if she loves him? Well, she said, let him go. Paul says, those who do not work shall not eat. Those who do not work shall not eat. Do we help people by taking and fulfilling their responsibilities for them that they're still capable of fulfilling on their own? Well, what does it do to the person? Not just behavior, characterologically. What happens inside a person who has the capacity to pull their own weight but instead leeches off of other people? What happens to their character? Yes. I think all of that is really, really true, and I think it takes more energy on our part sometimes to figure out what somebody really needs and how to get them to that point than just to do it for them. I know particularly with raising children as a mom, sometimes it was easier just to do certain things than to really go after the character issues. But I think it's really important to always remember that we don't do it because, darn it, you deserve it, and I'm not. You know what I mean? I mean, we can still look yeah. at it through punishment. We should always have to make sure that in our heart, we are doing it because we love you, and that's what's best for you, to put your own glasses Thank on. you for pointing that out, because most of, in my experience, almost always, 
the person who is in this role of enabling is not being loving, they're being selfish. If you really get down to the heart motive, why are you not drawing a line with your sister? Why are you? Well, because I couldn't stand to see them. I couldn't stand to see them hungry. Oh, so it's not about what's good for them. It's about what makes you feel good. You're doing this for you, not for them. If you love them, you're willing to do what needs to be done, even if it hurts you to do it. Parents that take their kids to get vaccines, I've never seen a parent that enjoyed seeing the kid cry when they got stuck with the needle. Oh, I just enjoy that. No, the parents get distraught. They don't like to see the kid cry, but they do it anyway, even though it makes the parent uncomfortable, because it's good for the kid. Or a parent who spanks the kid's bottom, if that needs to be done. Parents usually don't enjoy that, but they do it if it's the right thing to do. Well, in our adult relationships, it's the same thing. Do we think through the lens of, how can I use my influence in governance of me to do what's helpful for another person? Do I take over their responsibilities and fulfill their roles and duties in life? That's not going to help them. That's only going to enable them. And ultimately, back to the question, what happens to the character of the person who offloads their responsibilities onto someone else and lets them carry them through life? What happens to their character? Do they become more confident? Do they become more, uh, more Christ-like inside? Do they develop within? No, they, ex- they experience greater insecurities, greater inadequacies. They end up uh, using all types of denial, distortion. They manipulate. Why? Because they don't like looking in the mirror and seeing who they really are. And I'm going to tell you, pretty much every family that I've ever known has somebody in the family doing this. Somebody. Yes, what we to doing have is that we pray to God for wisdom. Pray, pray to God for wisdom. So that he can give us wisdom to help others, how we can help others. Yeah, she's saying praying so that we can know how and when to help others. I think that's incredibly right, learning how to set healthy boundaries. You see, there's uh, some principles. If you don't use it, you one of those laws that we were talking about. You t- take your arm and put it in a sling and don't use it for a while and watch what happens. It will shrivel up on you. What happens to the character of the person who over time avoids exercising their self-governance in control of themselves to do what's right in governance of themselves? What happens over time? They get weaker and weaker and weaker over time. So the danger in carrying other people's burdens, we can hurt them. Now, do you think it's easy when you actually stand up and let's say you've been in a position, you've been carrying somebody's burdens for a while, like the patients I just mentioned? Do you think the patient who tells her brother she they can't live in the house anymore, that that's going to be fun and easy to do? Do you think he's going to be understanding about it? No. How about the woman who's been taking care of her renal failure sister, doing all of her duties, and she stops doing the things that the lady's able to do for herself? Do you think her sister will initially be, well, I appreciate that so much. Thank you. I know you're helping my character grow. I appreciate that. <laughs> or do you think she's going to be attacked and blamed? You're heartless. You're mean. You're cold. You don't care. You're unloving. What's going to happen? And if you can't take that, and this is the reason why these people stay in these roles, is because they can't take the criticism of other people thinking that they're hard-hearted. And so they go ahead and go along and say, you're right, no, I'll do it for you, just don't think that way of me. It's like a father that I had whose kid was out of control as an adolescent, and he took the history and he said, he never punished the kid without the kid's approval. He would say, you won't be mad at daddy if daddy puts you in time out, will you? Come on! Same thing. You won't be mad at, at your brother. You won't be mad at your sister if she, if she cuts you off, will you? Well, I might be. That's okay. You can be mad at me if you need to be. 
Do what's right, yes. But if you've been helping somebody, and it's to their, it's to their detriment that you're helping them, when you do break off, should you not wean yourself away from them rather than just to break off? Could you do more harm? Depends on the circumstance. Okay. Some, some, sometimes you're exactly right, sometimes not so much. Depends on the circumstance. Yeah. Paul, in Wednesday's lesson, look at Wednesday's lesson. In the first paragraph, we won't read that whole thing, but it talks about the law of Christ. And it, then after it talks about the law of Christ, um, uh, it talks about what, how people have interpreted this over time. In the middle of the paragraph, it says, while in the later interpretation has some merit, the latter interpretation has some merit, the context is similar, and similar terminology with Galatians 5.14 suggests that fulfilling the law of Christ is another reference to fulfilling the moral law through love. Paul showed earlier in his letter that the moral law was not annulled with the coming of Christ. Instead, the moral law is, uh, as interpreted by love, continues to play an important role. What do you think they mean by the term moral law here? They're talking Ten Commandments here, right? Yeah. And what do you think of the logic here about the law of Christ and the moral law? Well, what is the law of Christ? It's the law of love. And what's the Ten Commandments an expression of? The law of love. Um, Adapted for humans in a sinful need state. That's what the Ten Commandments were. Can the law of love ever be annulled? No. Why not? Because it's the foundation of life and it originates in God's nature and He will always exist. That's exactly right. It's very obvious, very straightforward. It's not a trick question, even though I sometimes ask those. Why is it okay for a mother to brush the teeth of her 18-month-old child but not okay for the same mother to brush the teeth for an 18-year-old child. <laughs> and you say that's pretty obvious, right? Hmm. But, but, but think about the implications. What would the mother do to the child at 18 if she's still brushing the child's teeth at 18, assuming that this is not a child who is quadriplegic or something? Lots of damage, tremendous damage. She would injure that child, injure the child. Love seeks to build up, to bless, to help others develop their full potential, which means we don't habitually do for others that which they are capable of doing for themselves. In the physical world, strength increases as we exercise or stress our muscles. So we go to the weight room and lift weights. We are stressing our muscles, and as we stress them, they grow stronger. Psychologically, emotionally, spiritually, the same is true. If we never are put in situations where we have to stress ourselves, push ourselves against what's comfortable, we will never grow in character and strength. If we never bur- shoulder any burdens, if we carry no responsibilities, we never grow up. We stay children forever. Yes? The statement, instead, the moral law as interpreted by love, it's somewhat difficult to understand if if you um, truly think that the moral law is the law of love, right. then it, you know... See, those types of comments, they're revealing of the thought process behind the one who put those comments down about how they perceive God's law as something other than love, and that's why we have to look through love to see the law. What's well, like, I need to look through the lens of love to see love. Wow, that doesn't make sense when I say it that way, does it? No. Uh, it's Friday's lesson, first paragraph. It says, the Spirit of God keeps evil under the control of conscience. When man exalts himself above the influence of, of the Spirit, 
he reaps a harvest of iniquity. Over such, over such a man, the Spirit has less and less influence to restrain him from sowing seeds of disobedience. Warnings have less and less power over him. He gradually loses his fear of God. He sows to the flesh, he sows to the flesh, he will reap corruption. The harvest of the seed that he himself has sown is ripening. He has a contempt for God's holy commandments. His heart of flesh becomes a heart of stone. Resistance to truth confirms him in iniquity. It is because men sowed seeds of evil that lawlessness, crime, and violence prevailed in the antediluvian world. What's being described here? Natural law of God. Natural, how God designed us. God designed us for adaptation. We actually are built incredibly, amazingly wonderful, that based on the choices you make, the, the behaviors you engage in, the beliefs that you hold, the thoughts that you think, you will change yourself. Your brain will rewire. Your neural circuits will change. The genes that are turned on and turned off will change expression. We are designed to change and adapt based on the free will choices that we make in governance of ourselves. That's what's being described here. And we either, by our choices, are cooperating with God's agencies for healing and restoration, or we're hardening ourselves against his agencies. Notice the next paragraph. All should be intelligent. Oh, I love that. Intelligence. Yes. All should be intelligent in regard to the agency by which the soul is destroyed. Notice this. The agency, we should be intelligent in regards to the agency by which the soul is destroyed. It is not because of any decree that God has sent out against him. What? God doesn't sit in judgment and give a decree to destroy us? Wow, that would be unintelligent to think that. It's, this is powerful, guys. Uh, he, he does not make man spiritually blind. God gives sufficient light and evidence to enable man to distinguish truth from error, but he does not force man to receive the truth. He leaves him free to choose the good or to choose the evil. It, if man resists evidence... Resist evidence. Think that through. It means we have to think. We have to reason. If man resists evidence that is sufficient to guide his judgment in the right direction and chooses evil once, he will do so. Do this more readily the second time. The third time will still be more, uh, more eagerly. Uh, eagerly withdrawn himself from God and choose to stand on the side of Satan. And in this course he will continue until he is confirmed in evil and believes the lie he has cherished as truth. His resistance has produced its harvest. So what is the agency? Are you intelligent regarding the agency by which the soul is destroyed? Because the church would teach you that it's God who destroys the soul. That would be unintelligent. Our gracious Father in heaven, we thank you so much that your laws for those who will open their eyes to see and have ears to hear are so obvious around us, so testable, so reasonable, so practical, so reproducible. Give us wisdom, discernment to see and understand your kingdom and your laws. We recognize that within us there is a force, a power that we were born with, that we didn't choose, that drives us to act against your laws, that, that tempts us to act in selfishness rather than self-sacrificing love. We, in our strength, have no power to resist that. And many of us, Lord, have spent time in our lives where we've indulged that, that desire of self-centeredness and it's grown stronger and we're weak. But Lord, we don't have to fight this in our strength. You have. You have overcome for us and you have promised us strength if we'll just simply ask and open our heart. So we open our heart and we ask for your strength to come in, to give us a new motive, a new desire, a new willingness and power to follow through in fulfilling the responsibilities you've given us in this world 
to become like you in our loving and dealing with others. We pray in your holy name. Amen.